This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 31, Leviticus chapters 24 through 27. Taking a break from all the sex and Tum'ah stuff, chapter 24 begins with Moshe instructing Aharon to prepare what we refer to today as the Ner Tamid, or Eternal Flame. Moshe also directs Aharon to prepare the Lechem HaPanim, the bread of the face or presence, and along with frankincense, it is to be a fire offering to Adonai, a reminder portion for the Shabbat, which is also set aside for the Kohanim to consume in a holy place. And suddenly, at verse 10, another break in the inaction. This time, a cautionary tale of a man whose father was Egyptian and his mother was a Jew who reviled the name of God. From the reaction to this man's profanity, it seems that no one had ever heard these kinds of words before, or ever been stuck in traffic. So the bystanders grab the guy and bring him to Moshe, who has the scallywag put under arrest. Moshe, too, doesn't know what to do with the 'er ne'er-do-well, so God tells Moshe, take this insulter outside the camp and have the community stone him to death. Chapter 24 concludes with a list of of other such badly behaved and the associated punishments to be meted out. Such as someone who takes another human life, well, he dies. But if he takes the life of an animal, he must compensate the owner for its full value. If someone maims another, he is to be similarly maimed. And this standard of justice is applicable to all, to the citizen as well as to the refugee. And with that variation of the Equal Protection Clause, God concludes his remarks and the scamp is summarily executed. Chapter 25 sets down some agricultural regulations, specifically the sabbatical year, where any kind of agricultural work is prohibited, and at the end of the seven times seventh year, you are to blow the shofar on Yom Kippur and essentially reboot society. In the Yovel, or 50th year, all land reverts to its original owners. This might put a damper on on real estate in the run-up to the reboots, but You know, what follows in verse 14 through verse 17 is a primer on how to run land deals in the years previous and subsequent to the Yovel. Keeping these rules, Leviticus reminds us, is critical not only from the perspective of good governance, but also the land itself, which will not give its yield if you're a no-good chiseler. And speaking of the land, if you're wondering how you're supposed to eat in a year where you, you don't sow or reap, the answer is, year six will provide a surplus so big that you could eat for three years from this bounty alone. But you could only eat from this yashan, or what is old, until the ninth year. Verses 35 through 43 discuss predatory lending practices and labor relations, specifically how you're to treat the poor and when they're down on their luck, and you can't gouge them with biting interest or profit, so no money store or cash stops allowed. And if you're going to work off the debt, you can't treat them like Canaanite slaves. That would be inhumane and degrading. But if you're a Canaanite slave, well, you're screwed. The chapter concludes with the technicalities of payment plans to redeem oneself from servitude as it pertains to the run-up and aftermath of the Yovel. Chapter 26 begins with the classic exchange. Quid pro quo. I tell you things, you tell me things. Not about this case, though. About yourself. Quid pro quo. In this case, the Jews promise to keep the mitzvot, and in exchange, God will provide some insight that will facilitate the capture of a serial killer, and peace and prosperity in the land of Israel, as well as agricultural bounty and divine camaraderie. But if the Jews do not keep up their end of the deal, 
then the real fun begins. And the rest of the chapter is a very lurid, very vivid description of all the terrible things that God will do. Bad. Been chopping trees. I done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Chapter 27 concludes Leviticus with a detailed discussion about donating cash and eventually goods to the dwelling and how much is appropriate for each member of the community to give. And in the final verse, the third book of the Torah brings it all back to the beginning of the law giving to Moshe receiving all these various mitzvot from God at Sinai. So there is a lot to talk about this week. Let's get to it. want to play devil's advocate, or as we'll discover in episode 190, when we look at the book of Job, or Eov, Satan as prosecutor, and ask the following question. But, but first, the setup. Uh, in a capitalist system, people are encouraged to invest and produce new things for other people to buy. Free markets spread the stuff folks produce for other folks to buy. Market forces keep those prices reasonable, as buyers will only ask for what consumers will pay based on, well, no one really knows for sure. But often the producers of goods do not have the cash necessary, so they have to borrow, which is a critical part of the investing side of capitalism as well as the functioning of the market. When one person lends to another, the exchange helps reallocate existing resources from less productive uses to more productive uses. The money sitting in my mattress might better be used to help someone's business expand or to help Mr. Martini move from Potter's Field to Bailey Park. Sometimes, folks do this exchange out of the goodness of their hearts or because as the Rambam, or Maimonides wrote in the Mishnah Torah, the laws of gifts to the poor chapter 10, the highest degree of charity above which there is no higher is he who strengthens the hand of his poor fellow Jew and gives him a gift or an interest-free loan or enters into a business partnership with the poor person. Even within this topmost rung of the tzedakah ladder, there is a hierarchy. Of the three, the interest-free loan and the business partnership are regarded as the best of the best because it gives the poor person an opportunity to earn for themselves and become financially independent. But sometimes, actually most of the time, folks agree to reallocate existing resources because they get something out of it. This is known as lending with interest, a pastime which Jews have had a long and sad history. So, when I lend my money with interest, what I'm doing is exchanging a current economic good for a greater quantity of an identical economic good in the future. I'm also foregoing the use of goods that I can purchase with that money in the present in exchange for the use of goods that I can purchase with a greater of the amount of money in the future. And the person getting my money also benefits in the present in exchange for a little bother going forward. So here's the question. Why should there be any limits on the amount of interest I can charge someone else? If the market is free, if the dance between buyer and seller determines what's fair, won't the market set an acceptable rate? I mean, there's caveat emptor, right? And isn't the market supposed to be like nature, where there are predators and there are prey and... Nah! 
Chihuahua. In short, no. And here's where definitions are important, because many folks conflate two very different ideas, the free market and laissez-faire capitalism. Did I pronounce that right? Laissez-faire capitalism? Anyway, a free market is a market structure which is not controlled by a designated authority. Laissez-faire capitalism is an economic environment in which transactions between private parties are free from government restrictions, tariffs, and subsidies, with only enough regulations to protect property rights. But here's the thing. The free market, at least as it functions today, is not free from government intervention, for good or for ill. No one would rationally argue that government has no role in the market. Folks want their property protected. Folks want recourse for the enforcement of contracts they sign. Folks also want government subsidies to help their businesses and investments, and while they're at it, low to no taxes. I would also think that rational folks would want government to keep an eye on the market to prevent fraud. We'd want government to tell factory owners who process our food to make sure the food they sell is up to health standards, even though those owners would make more money if they didn't have to zealously maintain a clean facility. But government also has a jaundiced eye about the way the free market works, because sometimes, regularly in fact, free markets fail. Dogmatic capitalists will tell you that the market will correct itself by shedding poorly performing businesses and investments that caused its failure in the first place. So, just sit on your money bags, I mean, sit on your hands and let the market sort itself out. Except that while the market sorts itself out, many, many people suffer. So, in times of financial crisis or impending crisis, governments who espouse free market capitalism will often step in to artificially correct the markets. They'll take steps to more recognizable and managed economies, like taking over certain businesses and controlling how they're governed. But even in times of financial health, these same governments intervene in the market by rooting out fraud through the overseeing of the function of the stock market, or how companies are traded on the stock market and how they do business. Which brings us to interest rates. Lending, as I said earlier, helps reallocate existing resources from less productive uses to more productive uses. But again, if you look at the market and all the risks any kind of investment entails, one could say that if I have money and a borrower comes to me and this borrower presents as a, as a credit risk, what's my incentive to give him or her that loan? She might default and I'll lose my money. So in order to convince me to take my cash out of my mattress and basically speculate with it, I should be able to charge a higher interest rate or ask for higher fees to protect myself from that possibility. Look. People with bad credit default more than people with good credit. So if I lend a lot of people money, and in, and in that pool of people that I've lent to, I make some risky loans with higher interest along with other safe loans at a lower rate, I'm protected. It kind of all evens out. Or does it? Or do lenders make this claim to justify collecting higher rates and fees for a segment of the population that can't push back against lenders as effectively as, I don't know, more well-heeled borrowers? And then there's the short-term loans with outrageously high fees, such as payday loans, credit card late fees, checking account overdraft fees, and tax refund anticipation loans. The cash stops, the money stores, they all claim that fees are fees and interest is interest and ne'er the twain shall meet. But what happens when you really want to lend and lend a lot and there's no good people left to lend money to? This is what happened in the early 2000s in the United States in the real estate market. All the safe loans had been loaned, so banks ventured forth to seek out new frontiers and new borrowers, subprime borrowers. 
Folks with low credit ratings who pose a high risk of defaulting on their loan. They even create a new kind of loan, a no-document loan, where the banks didn't ask how much the borrower could afford, and the borrower wasn't so forthcoming either. And this was known as the ninja loan, as in no income, no job, and no assets. Now, why would they do that? They couldn't charge these high-risk borrowers more interest to even things out, so they were going to give this person a person who could not possibly pay back the loan, a big loan at competitive rates? Why? Well, because of a newish product called mortgage-backed securities. The growth in the MBS market was accompanied by numerous innovations such as the collateralized mortgage obligations or CMOs and the emergence of private label alternatives to MBS issued by government-sponsored entities. Sorry, my eyes glazed over for a little bit, but I'm, but I'm back. I'm back. So, instead of banks and lenders worrying about loan default, which is why they used to gouge high-risk borrowers, what they did now was issue the loan and promptly sell the loan to others who ultimately took the risk if the payment stopped. And since the first batches of mortgage-backed securities were based on mortgages granted to more dependable prime borrowers, these securities did well. They performed so well, in fact, that investors wanted to buy more and more and more bundled loans. But, but where to get the loans? Where? Where? Oh, where, oh, where should we get these loans? Hmm. I know. If you loosen your standards for mortgage applicants and then borrow heavily to create cash flow for those new loans in order to create more mortgages... Because without mortgages, there can be no mortgage-backed securities. I won't take up too much more of this episode diagramming everything else that went wrong in 2008, but suffice to say, it was bad. And there was a lot of financial malfeasance and shady dealings and unethical business practices. Which is why you want government regulators sniffing around to make sure that all these deals and products are legitimate and above board, and to make sure that the rates of interest are not, as Leviticus says, biting in various ways, either in excess or in seeming reasonableness. Leviticus doesn't pull any punches on this matter. It has no patience with this particular manifestation of laissez-faire capitalism. Then again, neither does the Catholic Pope Francis. I'll link to the section in the Pope's Evangelii Gaudium, or Joy of the Gospel, where he really lays into Reaganomics, and as a result finds himself excoriated by wingnut pundits as a Marxist. And I'll also link to an episode of Freakonomics dedicated to pondering the document and its implications for the 1.2 billion Catholics worldwide. Leviticus lays it out there and connects the dots. If a man's hand falters, perhaps because of harsh economic conditions, you should strengthen him. You should extend a hand to help and not see this as an opportunity for profit. And if you think that the deal is too sweet to pass over, hold your God in awe. Set aside predatory lending practices. Your neighbor is not prey, he is your neighbor. He and his family, alongside you and your family, makes up the community in which you live. And if you're still thinking about that easy profit to be reaped from the misfortune of others, remember that, quote, I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And if that was not enough of a windfall, God continues and says, I did this to give you the land of Canaan, so behave yourself. Now that's advice you can take to the bank. <laughs> As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes Store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or at SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. 
You're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 32, which launches the Book of Numbers, chapters 1 through 3. Y'all come back now. Here.